John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciple therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving. But believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John chapter 20 of John's Gospel records. Three consecutive post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember that he appears to Mary and then to the disciples and then to Thomas. And you'll remember Mary goes from grief to joy and the disciples from fear to peace and power. And Thomas will take his own journey. It's a journey from unbelief. To believe from doubt to certainty. And many of us, as we've been studying through this next to the last chapter of John, we identify with Mary and her sorrow. And we can sometimes identify with the disciples in their fear. And some of us can identify with Thomas and his skepticism and doubt. Perhaps there's been a time in your life where you asked quite carefully the question, do I really believe that this is true? Is the Bible telling me the truth about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection? Thomas appears some 12 times in the New Testament accounts, and his name is mentioned along with the other apostles, and he's also Mentioned in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. Some of you might be asking the question, well, are there advantages to doubt? You know, Decision Magazine wrote, quote, Doubt makes the mountain which faith can remove. I like that. The German philosopher Goethe wrote, Give me the benefit of your convictions if you have any, but keep your doubts to yourself. I have enough of my own. And for sadly, for Thomas, sadly, his conviction at first is his doubt. But I want to remind you of something. That soon his conviction will become confession. You know, we're fast approaching the 150th anniversary of the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. My friend Ray Comfort has come up with a new amended version of Origin of the Species where he addresses this particular book, some of its pernicious doctrines, presents the gospel and reasons why you should believe in Jesus Christ. As you can imagine, he's getting a lot of criticism. Charles Darwin, the famous naturalist, first studied for the ministry, but he abandoned it altogether. He wrote, and I quote, I gradually came to disbelieve in Christianity as a divine revelation. Disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress. You know, some people are troubled by their doubt. But some people celebrate their skepticism and their unbelief. And you may have come to church content in your doubt or troubled 
by your doubt. But I'm reminded of a piece of prose that was written long ago by an unknown author. I've always found it helpful for me. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the blackest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions. Who believes? Faith answers, I. And so we see a journey. Our friend Thomas. He will go from powder to doubter to shouter. Let's take a look. Verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. And they're talking about verses 19 through 23. He's called Didymus in the Aramaic language, which has caused many Bible scholars to suggest that he was, in fact, a twin. Uh, As you can imagine, those of you who are a part of a pair... Twins have a unique set of circumstances, a a life all their own. Thomas has many twins in the modern society. Sometimes they're called skeptics. They're called doubters. The world is filled with people who embrace what's known as philosophical skepticism and scientific skepticism. These are people who refuse to believe it unless they can see it with their eyes or taste it with their mouth or touch it with their hands. These are people who are reluctant to believe that anything exists unless there is some sort of empirical way of processing the information. And you'll note it says when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, Thomas was not with them. We're not told why he was absent from the assembly. Was he hurt? Was he shattered? Was he afraid? Did Thomas feel some twinge of guilt for having forsaken the Lord in his time of need? Whatever the reason, whatever the reason why Thomas wasn't there, he missed out. You know, it's interesting to me, there doesn't seem to be a hint of rebuke on the part of the other disciples. There's no, you weren't here, we were. Dude, you missed out. Can you imagine going to church and one day the pastor decides to give everyone who attends the service ten bucks? Just start, yeah, you got here a shout, woo! Can you imagine next week how many people would come? Yeah, you go, I would. But guess what? Whatever the reason why he didn't show up, he did miss out. He didn't experience the presence of the Lord. He didn't experience the peace of the Lord. He didn't experience the power of the Lord. He didn't experience the praises of the Lord, the promotions of the Lord, the provisions of the Lord. And there are certain events and opportunities that aren't easily repeatable. There was a survey done in 1991 that revealed one in eight people who claim to have a right relationship with God and be born again. They never go to church. And as you can imagine, as the pastor, all of the reasons why people skip church somehow filter down to me. Well, I'm turned off by the endless begging for money. It's clear you don't go to this church. When my dad visited this church, the one and only time that he visited, he said, Hey, when do we take the money? I go, Dad, we don't, we don't take the money. We receive the offering, and my dad starts laughing. I can't believe these people give you money and you don't even have a gun. <laughs> it's boring. Your sermon, 
sermons are irrelevant to my life. Or I leave the church feeling guilty. It's my only day off and I want to do other things. I have to work. I've had a bad experience at church. No one invited me. I'm uncomfortable going by myself. My lifestyle is unacceptable to most of these church goers. The church has nothing to offer me. The sermon is too long. It's the only day that I can sleep in. I read the story of a couple that you might know. The wife was getting ready for church and she found it unusual that her husband was still sleeping. And she said, get up, you're going to be late for church. I don't want to go to church this morning. Is there something wrong? Are you sick? Do you have a reason? I have three reasons. The people are cold. No one likes me and I don't want to go. You're wrong. The congregation is warm and there are a few people who like you. And besides, Gina, you're the pastor. (laughs) Persistent doubt has its disadvantages. It can delay blessing. It can delay pardon. It can delay new life and assurance. And in verse 25, it says, The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The passage is filled with all kinds of interesting information. But I want to draw your attention, first of all, to an important word that you might overlook. It seems like such a small word, but, but it's, it's that first word that you see in the first sentence where it says, The other disciples therefore said... To him, I want you to underline it just for a moment, because the word is in the original language what's what's called the active voice. And let me help you understand what that means. It, it means that the implication is that the other disciples therefore said to him over and over again. In other words, the implication is they said it and they kept saying it. They kept saying it over and over again. I want you to imagine just for a moment that here is Matthew and here is Peter and here is James and here is John. And they kept saying over and over to him, no, it's, it's true. Jesus is back from the dead. He is alive from the dead. And you're looking at Matthew's face and you're looking at Peter's face and James and John and you are face to face and they're saying over and over again, he's alive. And he says, I don't believe you. We've seen the Lord. I don't believe you. The testimony fell on a very hard heart. With the confident assertion on the part of the disciples came this obstinate denial on the part of Thomas. Now, I want you to just carefully think back. I know that some of you fantasize about what it must have been like to be with Jesus, to walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus and be with him at that moment where he's arrested and executed. Thomas has the testimony of an empty tomb. Thomas heard Mary's dramatic account of seeing Jesus. Peter, James, and John share a united testimony. We have seen the Lord. Look what it says. The other disciples. These aren't strangers. This isn't a guy you hear on the radio. This isn't a person who has his own television show. This is, this is a person that they've walked with and talked with and, and, and went with day in and day out. Peter, James, and John followed Jesus and Thomas followed with them. 
And at this point, he doesn't seem to understand the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice or his resurrection from the dead. And clearly, clearly, not all first century Jews believed in spirits and angels and, and apparitions, but I'm sure that Thomas did. I'm also reasonably certain that Thomas was willing to concede that Peter and James and John and Matthew... They saw something. They saw something. Whatever it is that they saw, he wasn't sure. He couldn't understand or explain it. But they saw something. And in John's gospel, when Jesus, you'll remember when he decides to return to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas is one of the ones who declares that even though it probably means they're all going to die, it's better to go with Jesus than not to go. In John eleven 16, you'll remember Thomas said, who is called the twin, he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we can die with him. Well, he might have been a skeptic, but he's no coward. When Jesus told the disciples that he didn't have long to live, And that he had to go and he had to prepare a place for them to receive him to himself. It was Thomas who said, I don't understand where you're going. I don't understand what it is that you're saying. Please help me understand what it is that you're saying. Where are you going and why can't we go with you? And you'll remember it was Jesus who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Thomas had many, many experiences with Jesus, but he's not about to believe the other disciples' experience. Thomas knew that Jesus turned water into wine. Thomas knew that Jesus healed the nobleman's son. Thomas knew that he healed the paralyzed man. Thomas knew that he fed the 5,000. Thomas knew that he walked on water. Thomas knew that he healed the blind man. Thomas knew that he raised Lazarus from the dead. But he can't go in that particular direction. By the way, only here, only here in verse 25 is the word nails mentioned in the New Testament. The Romans didn't always nail their victim to the cross, but nails are driven through the hands and feet of the Savior. In Psalm 22, verse 16, it was written a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion, and it was written hundreds of years before the Assyrians even invented crucifixion as a manner of death. The Assyrians invented it, But the Romans perfected it. It's sort of like spaghetti. Hi, Chinese church. The the Chinese people invented spaghetti. But the Italian people perfected it. I'm just kidding. I, I love lo mein. As a matter of fact, when the psalmist wrote in Psalm 22, 16... For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. But Thomas demands a personal demonstration. Personal evidence of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 25 where it says, I will not believe it's in the double negative and again i want you to see the extremity of the uncertainty face to face eyeball to eyeball i won't no i won't believe you know there's a big difference between doubt and unbelief Thomas refuses to believe that his friends are telling him the truth. Doubt, by the way, is something that lodges in the mind. Doubt is something where you ask 
questions and you want answers. And the person may or may not want to believe, but unbelief is different. Unbelief isn't just an issue that takes place in your mind. Unbelief is something that's rooted and grounded inside of your heart. You see, the heart may ask questions and it may want answers, but unbelief wants excuses more than it wants evidence. In the documentary film Expelled, Ben Stein asks Richard Dawkins, Oxford professor and the darling of atheism, in a dramatic and a daring question. It goes something like this. Ben Stein says to him, now I want you to just imagine that everything in the Bible turns out to be true, that God is real and you stand before him in judgment. And he asks you this question, why didn't you believe in me? What are you going to say to God? And Dawkins hymns and haws for just a moment as he's contemplating even the absurdity of the suggestion that such a thing could even happen. And finally, he answers the question. He says, why didn't you give me more evidence? Why why didn't you give me a greater revelation why didn't you reveal yourself what was it why did you keep yourself in the dark Dawkins still wants more evidence but unbelief refuses to listen to the available evidence and unbelief says I'll believe but these are my conditions Unbelief ignores God's word. And Thomas, I want you to think about this. Thomas believes that Jesus is a great teacher. Thomas believes that he's a great prophet. He believes that Jesus has access to the supernatural. But he has an incomplete view of Jesus. And the reason why he has an incomplete view of Jesus is is because he has a false view of Jesus. His false view of Jesus is that even though Jesus said certain things, he didn't get it exactly right. What is it about human beings? What is it about men who prefer to see Jesus as only a good man, maybe a a, a better man than most, maybe even the best man? Perhaps it, it, it means that we can go down to his level or maybe we can be elevated to his level, but it it makes Jesus less than Lord and less Than God. People look at Jesus and they see what a perfect person is like. And then they wonder, hey, if I'm that good, if if God is willing to accept Jesus the, the way he is, maybe God's willing to accept me the way that I am. Maybe people aren't so bad after all. Maybe, maybe human beings aren't so bad that they need a savior who would die for their sins. Perhaps people wonder if they just do the best that they can, that maybe God will accept them. If Jesus is only human, then no one's obligated to follow everything he said. I mean, if he's only human, then you can take the things that he said that are worth listening to. But if he says something that's so absurd that it can't be believed, like I am the way and the truth and the life, he just... Got that part wrong. He's one of many ways. He's one of many truths. And that's what happens if you believe that Jesus is only a person. And so the powder goes to doubter. Look look what it says in verse 26. And after eight days... His disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Shalom, Alekom, Shalom. Now, I want to point something out to you. Eight long days have gone by. Eight long days of utter 
disappointment. Eight long days of looking at Matthew and looking at James and looking at John and hearing the testimony over and over and over again. And Thomas wants answers and Thomas has doubts. And once again, the doors are shut. It's the same as the earlier passage where it means it was locked and it was locked tight. I'm wondering if it's the same upper room where Jesus and his friends celebrated the final Passover. I wonder if this is the same place where Thomas said, where are you going and why can't I come with you? I wonder if this is the same place where Jesus appeared a week earlier. Clearly, the disciples are still meeting behind closed doors. And clearly... Jesus supernaturally has the ability to supersede the circumstances. And he gives a typical Middle Eastern greeting. And after he does that, immediately, immediately he turns around and he confronts our friend Thomas, the doubter. In verse 27, then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Question. Does this seem to indicate to you that Jesus was aware of the statements that Thomas had made earlier? The arguments and the doubt and the unbelief? Unless he shows up and unless I'm able to do this, I'm not going to believe. Guess what? The unbelief or the private doubts are completely known by Jesus, aren't they? You know what's interesting to me about that is that people who come to our church will sometimes say, you know, I I don't feel comfortable here. Why? Well, you know, I, I still have doubts. I'm okay with that. No, you don't understand. I, I, I still have questions. Cool. No, you don't understand. I mean, I have some real doubts and some real questions. It doesn't scare me. It doesn't intimidate me. Jesus knows the truth about your life and about your heart. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is aware of his of his doubt. Jesus knows everything in a very real sense. Jesus was there when Thomas makes his dramatic statement of unbelief. And Jesus is there when you make your dramatic statement of unbelief or doubt. When it's voiced in front of other people or when it's not voiced in other people. When you lay your head on the pillow and you wonder if anyone's listening. Or if anyone cares, he knows the truth. He knows the truth about your heart. Because guess what? There is no such thing as private unbelief and private skepticism and private doubt. Jesus knows about sorrow and he knows about fear and he knows about doubt. And he knows about love. And he knows about hope. Jesus knows exactly when and where to poke and prod and stab the conscience. And clearly Thomas is in the place where Jesus can reach out to him. For better or for worse, Thomas is in the presence of believers and Thomas has listened over and over and over again to their testimony and he's not about to abandon the friendship and the fellowship. And if you're still wondering and if you're still doubting and you're still skeptical, it's okay. Because when you least expect it, Jesus will show up and he'll poke and prod. Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Are these permanent wounds? Why are they there? 
I want to bring something to your attention. These are the tokens that Jesus earlier offered his disciples in order to recognize him. He doesn't say, hey, look, guess what? I brought mom's baby book. Christmas cards. This is me at my virgin birth. Now, don't get me wrong. What do you offer people when they ask for your identification? What do you give them when they ask for your credentials? The Jesus who hung on the cross. The Jesus who went to the tomb. The Jesus who rose from the dead. The Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even though the cross stood for a few hours and the crown of thorns was pressed on top of his head for just a short while. And even though it only took a moment for the nails to pierce his hands and his feet. What was once shameful is now glorious, and what was once filled with anguish becomes the credentials whereby he identifies himself. Jesus is the Jesus who died for your sins. He bled and died to take away my sins. When you introduce Jesus to your family and friends, are you reluctant to let them look at his hands and his feet? Does it make you uncomfortable? Gino, you can't say that. You know, when you talk about sin, it makes people uncomfortable. But guess what? The Jesus who presents his credentials... He doesn't begin with the mystery of his incarnation. He doesn't continue with his moral perfection. He doesn't bring his goodness and his truth and his mercy, even though all of that is true. He's the one with the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side. He's not the spirit brother of Lucifer like the Mormons teach. He's not the archangel Michael. He's not some gaseous presence. This is the Jesus who lived and died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. Do you seriously expect me not to show you the same thing? Look at them. I once, several years ago, there was a guy who came to church and he was wearing a very disturbing t-shirt. It was the picture of a man who was brutally beaten and crucified. And I mean, it looked like a picture that you might imagine of a person going through a windshield and then being dragged through the street. And on the t-shirt it said, if I'm okay and you're okay, then how do you explain this? You know, we laugh. But it is a powerful message. If Jesus died on the cross... And presents as his credentials the holes in his hand and the holes in his feet and the holes in his side. Then he wants Thomas to understand something that at the heart of his doubt and at the heart of his unbelief is a heart that refuses that, to believe that he is a sinner in need of a savior. He shows them. And Jesus says, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The time has come where apathy, indifference, skepticism, 
and doubt have to become certainty. Blaise Pascal, arguably one of the greatest minds who has ever lived on the planet Earth, wrote, The evidence of God's existence and His gift is more than compelling, but those who insist that they have no need of Him, or it will always find ways to discount the offer, there are two ways to easily slide through life, to believe everything or to doubt everything, and both ways save us from thinking. Believing includes confessing. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You confess from your heart. How do I become a Christian? It's as close as your heart and it's close as your mouth. People think it's so complicated. Well, where are the thrills? Where are the chills? Where are the spills? Where's the bright light? Let's have the soft music start to play. Let's put on some dramatic images. But the Bible says that you have to come by faith. And you probably think, if I was there and if I had seen everything that Thomas had saw, I wouldn't have a bitter heart of doubt and unbelief. But Thomas wanted to keep what many of us want to keep. Our sin. And a false notion of Jesus. You know, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. James said, Are there still some among you who hold that only believing is enough? Believing in one God? Well, remember that the demons believe that too. And they believe it so strongly that they tremble in fear. What are you saying? I'm saying that to go from atheism to agnosticism to a belief in a deity, simply believing that there is a God is not the same as being saved. You have to believe that this God loves you and that he sent Jesus to die for you and that the message of the ministry of Jesus is his death and his resurrection. Clearly, God exists, but simply acknowledging his existence doesn't constitute salvation. Believers change in their heart because they embrace the truth about his identity. And so Thomas goes from powder to doubter to shouter. Look what it says in verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. The shout takes the form of a declaration that Jesus is both Lord and God and the presence of Jesus and the words of Jesus leave no more room for doubt in his heart. Guess what? Doubt and unbelief get crowded out. Not simply by the presence of Jesus, but by the declaration on Thomas's mouth. You're my Lord. You are God. By the way, why would Jesus allow such a statement to go unchallenged unless it was true? A similar thing happened to Paul and Barnabas in the city of Lystra. Overwhelmed, the people decided that they were going to offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas and worship them. And their response was, We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God in Acts 14, 11 through 18. John himself fell down and worshipped an angel in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. And the angel said to him, don't do it. See that you do it not, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of them which keep the saying of this book, worship God. 
I had a conversation with a Muslim on my radio program not too long ago. And he said, hello, I am listening to your program. You know, thank you very much. He said, you know, you keep talking about Jesus as God, but I, want, I need to tell you something that nowhere in the, in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God. So I cited this scripture. And the Muslim caller assured me. He said, no, you don't understand. This is what happened. He says to Jesus, my Lord, and then he goes, my God. In some sort of bifurcated exclamation. And I said that the text and the context doesn't support my Muslim friend's explanation. The reason that Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas lies in the fact that he is, in fact, the Lord and he is, in fact, God because his atonement. Now, think about it. He has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He has shown Thomas the wounds in his resurrected body, which Islam states is not real. He didn't really die on the cross for your sins, according to Islam. But according to the New Testament, he does in fact die for your sins and he does in fact rise from the dead. Because his atonement and his priesthood and his work of redemption are worthless and blasphemous. Unless he is God. And in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is the last to believe among the eleven. But at last, he believes. Maybe you were the first person in your family to believe. Or you might be the last. We have every reason to believe that Thomas never, ever doubted the Lord Jesus ever, ever again. We find him at Pentecost with the other disciples in the upper room. And then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. According to church tradition... Thomas traveled east and preached the gospel in Persia. I've had the great privilege of landing on the western shores of India in the exact same spot that according to tradition Thomas went. And I've been in churches in Kerala that traced the origins of their apostolic ministry to Thomas. And I've actually climbed a hill in Chennai and Madras where they say, this is the site where Thomas died. And do you know how he he died? He was preaching the gospel to a group of Hindu fanatics and they came with spears and they pierced his body. And I can just imagine the glorious, glorious reunion of Thomas in heaven with the piercings in his body as he presents The credentials of his faithfulness to his living Lord. Skeptics refuse to believe the warning of Jesus. Blessed are those who have seen, not seen, and yet have believed. I never saw Jesus rise from the dead. I never had an opportunity to hear firsthand the testimony of Mary. I didn't stand face to face with Matthew or with John or with Peter. But guess what? You do stand face to face with Matthew and with Peter and with John when you open up the testimony of the account that they've given. Thomas believed what he saw. You've all heard the popular saying, Seeing is, yeah, you know the saying, but Jesus changes all that. And he reminds us that it's not seeing that's believing, it's believing that's seeing. The greater blessing, the superior blessing comes for those who have not seen. So what unmistakable sign, what piece of evidence, what 
quiver in your liver? What feeling is it that you're looking for that will cause you to say, okay, I believe that Jesus is the Lord. If God did become a man, would you expect him to be born under unusual circumstances? If God became a man, would you expect him to be without sin? If God became a man, would you expect him to be able to demonstrate supernatural control in the form of miracles? If God became a man, would you expect him to to have an acute and a profound sense of his difference from the rest of the world? If God became a man, wouldn't you expect his words to be the greatest words ever spoken? If God became a man, wouldn't you expect him to have a lasting and universal impact? If God became a man... Would you expect him to be able to satisfy the spiritual hunger that's inside of your heart? If God could become a man, wouldn't you expect him to come back to life? Jesus provides permission for the person who has no sign, no dream, no light. No quiver in your liver. No thrill. No chill. Just an honest heart making an honest statement. I believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. You know, later on, Peter would write. He would say. In first Peter, chapter one, verse three, he would say. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively, lively, that is a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he goes on and he says, and might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. In whom. Though now you see him not. Yet believing. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. You know, it's the most vile, the most pathetic, the most heinous, the most wicked thing that a person might be able to do. You might come up with all kinds of different answers. Because people are capable of great wickedness. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the greatest wickedness of all is to simply deny Jesus. That he lied about everything. It's the sin of unbelief. As a matter of fact, John will later write about it in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. He writes, he that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. It's one thing to look Matthew in the face and say, I don't believe you. It's another thing to look Peter in the face and say, I don't believe you. It's another thing to look John in the face and say, I don't believe you. But when a resurrected Jesus shows up and he points to the place that becomes the whole reason why he died for your sins and rose from the dead. To look a resurrected Savior in the face and say, I don't believe you, is an unexpressible wickedness. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in three post-resurrection experiences. 
Jesus shows up and sorrow becomes joy. And fear becomes peace and power. And unbelief and doubt become certainty. And a declaration of identity. Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is God. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. And their heart has been crowded with sorrow and filled with fear and full of doubts. But Lord, I've noticed something that when the sun shines on a cesspool, it doesn't change the sun. And Lord, when you shine your light in our hearts, that the identity of Jesus doesn't change because of our sorrow or because of our fear or because of our uncertainty. Lord, you've given us your credentials. A real Savior who died on a cross and who rose from the dead. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who still has yet to deal with their sin. Who still live a life of separation and guilt and estrangement from you. Lord, I pray that even now that they would cry out to you. That, Lord, that they would say, I believe. I believe the truth about Jesus. I believe that he is the Lord. I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead for my justification. I believe it and I want to be a part of his forever family. Lord, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I want to receive Jesus. I believe that he is both Lord and God. And he's able to transform my heart and give me a new life. Lord, show up. So that I can press my hands. Into your hands. And press my hand into your feet and press my hand into your side and know that you are the Savior who died for my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.